Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. One of the things that's dawning on us as we study these books of Samuel is how frighteningly honest the Bible is about the character flaws and bad behavior of those who are its greatest heroes. There's no airbrushing of the great characters in the Bible story. And when you consider that the events that are recorded here are probably noted down uh, in official documents during the lifetime of David, it is amazing that he should allow some of this stuff to ever reach the light of day. And yet it does, because the Bible is written for our instruction. It's written for our building up. It's written in order that we might learn the good news that what God is doing in the world, he's doing in the world for people like David and for people like you and people like me. Well, the background to this reading today is miserably depressing. First of all, you've got the King David who's uh, availed himself of uh, somebody else's wife. Uh, and after he's had his fun, he's discarded her and killed her husband whenever she becomes pregnant. So that, that's not a good start to this section. Then his son Amnon, who is the heir to the throne, has raped his half-sister. David's daughter, Amnon's half-sister, has raped her and discarded her. Uh, one of the things that we, we read is that Amnon is described twice in the text, in chapter 13, as being a disgrace, who acted disgracefully. The word uh, Nabala means a disgraceful thing. The word Nabalim means that he was a disgrace. His father David had once met somebody like that. Earlier on in the story, his father David had encountered a man who was a disgrace. The same language is used. But at that time, when he'd set out to deal with that man and to get rid of him, to rub him out, the man's wife, Abigail, had met David on the road and had dissuaded him, had made David see sense, had talked him down from his, his determination to kill uh, Abigail's husband, who was a disgraceful man who acted disgracefully. But in the story of Amnon, who raped his sister Tamar, there is no such individual, there's no Abigail to talk anybody down from violence. Because Amnon had a brother, a younger brother. And this younger brother was the brother of Tamar, the girl who was raped. And she'd left the, she'd fled the scene, she'd fled the scene with her clothes torn, uh, crying out, feeling utterly used, and she'd reported it to her brother Absalom. That's the first point at which we begin to get a sense that Absalom is not reacting properly to the grief of her sis his sister. He's the one who talks her down from taking this matter to court. He dissuades her from going public on the issue. He tells her to be quiet and he takes her into his own home, probably as a control thing to keep her from being out there in general circulation, talking about what has happened and thereby bringing the, making the disgrace more widely known. Absalom effectively silences her. That's not good advice. When someone has been raped, they need to be encouraged to 
see it through so that there is justice done. But Absalom silences her. And he doesn't act the way you would expect a brother to act. I mean, if I had had a sister who was dealt with like this, I would be round at this guy's door, especially since I know who did it, especially since who did it is part of the family, especially since it involves incest as well as rape. I would be down at his door. I'd be kicking the door in. I'd be smashing his face. I'd be doing other unmentionable things to him and if in the course of it he died, that would be manslaughter because I would be doing it out of righteous rage. I think I would get a mans manslaughter. I'm just looking at my legal counsel here. I would certainly hope that... that uh, he's the prosecutor. He's no use. But uh, if, <laughs> I would hope that I'd get off with a charge of manslaughter. But Absalom doesn't act like that. There is no immediate reaction from Absalom. He suppresses his reaction for two years. He doesn't do anything. For two years, he does nothing. At the end of two years, he sets up a scenario in which he gets Amnon out of town into a different territory, away from courtiers and armies. He allows two years for talk to die down, for everyone to be off their guard, he sets Amnon up and then he puts his own men and allows his own men to go and kill Amnon. In other words, he kills Amnon in cold-blooded murder. It's not an act of rage. It's not a fit of anger. It is cold-blooded murder. And when we realize that Amnon is the heir to the throne, and when you read the rest of the story in this book and discover that Absalom is determined that he will have the throne, you begin to realize that Absalom has used his sister for political ends. In other words, the rape is now is now made worse by the way in which she is treated by her own brother, her other brother, her flesh and blood brother. And uh, she's quite in his household while he pursues his own purpose. Well, Absalom kill, kills Amnon. He then leaves to go to Syria, which is where his mother came from. Syria is an idol-worshipping area. There's no doubt his mother brought her idols with him. It may very well be that Absalom is a worshipper of idols along with his mother. And that's where he is. He's in exile. And David is in Jerusalem. And David is thinking about Absalom. Now let me read to you verses 39 and verse 1. 39 of chapter 13. Let me read it to you as it is in the English Standard Version. ESV. The, uh, let me read this. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. <clears throat> now if that makes sense to you, good. Uh, I, want, I want to just change the wording a little bit because there's a number of things you need to know. Number one, the word spirit is not in the Hebrew, it's not in the Masoretic, Masoretic text. The verb to long, when it says that Abraham, or sorry, that David longed for Absalom, uh, the word to long, long there is a stronger word 
that suggests that, that, that all the feeling has been used up, everything that has been kept has come to an end. The Hebrew says he was grieved. How was he comforted about Amnon because he was dead? He was grieved about Amnon because he was dead. And the, ver the words to go out to, to go out to Absalom, are used in Deuteronomy, for example, Deuteronomy 28 verse 7, of going out to war, of marching out to war against. Professor Bruce Waltke translates it like this. King David longed intensely to march out against Absalom, for he was grieved about Amnon. Joab, the son of Zeruah, he discerned that the king was ill-disposed towards Absalom. I suggest that that probably helps us to understand the little pantomime that takes place from verse 4. Because Joab knew that the king, David, was intransigent. He is against Absalom for killing the crown prince, the heir to the throne. But Joab, who is David's commander on the field, Joab knows best what to do in the interest of the kingdom. And the question that, that rises from the story is, does Joab know best? And we're going to explore whether that's true. And there are a number of lessons that we learn. And the first lesson we learn from the chapter is this, that we must not confuse guile for wisdom. We must not confuse guile for wisdom. Let me, let me show you how this works out. Joab, who is he? Well, he's David's go-to person. Whenever David has something he wants done, especially any dirty business he needs done, then Joab is the man you want to have go do it because he is utterly loyal. He is a political animal. He is devoted to Israel. He is utterly loyal to David and he is committed to the Davidic dynasty, dynasty going forward. Okay? He is committed entirely to that. And so we're not surprised that Joab is the one who comes up with this plan. He sees David getting older. I don't know what he, David is really old at this time. He's in his late 50s or something. He's nearly dead. And Joab thinks, what is going to happen when Joab, when David dies? Who's going to take the throne? There's nobody obvious. I mean, there's Bathsheba's son Solomon, but we know that Joab doesn't like that connection, doesn't want there to be any tarnishing of the name of the Davidic dynasty at all in this whole thing. So no, he's in Joab's mind, he's ticked off the list. The only person obvious is the one person who's still alive, and that is Absalom. And so Joab thinks in order to sustain the, the stability of the realm, in order to make sure that the dynasty goes forward, why do I even use the word, that it goes forward, then Absalom needs to be repatriated back to Jerusalem and put in place to succeed the king. That is Joab's ultimate goal. And in the pursuit of that goal, Joab sets up this little pantomime that you find from verse 4. He finds a wise woman of Tekoa. And the use of the word wise there is a little signal to you. You to ask yourself the question, is in fact she wise? Is this wisdom or is it something else? And I suggest you watch out because it's guile rather than wisdom. So he employs this 
woman. Why does he employ a woman to try and stop David in his intransigence and in his being against Absalom? Why? Because he wants David not to do anything ultimately. He doesn't want David to have Absalom executed. You see, I mentioned earlier there was a time in David's life when David found someone who was not a good person, like Amnon, who was a disgraceful person. And at that time, it was a woman who had talked David down. It was, it was Abigail who had talked David down. So Joab is his thinking things. He, he seems to listen to women, David. So I'll send a woman. So he finds a suitably articulate, intelligent woman, and he sends her, and he gives her the lines that she should use. And he sets up a little scenario. It looks very like an earlier scenario when David had sinned with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet came, and he told a little story, a little parable as well. And the effect of that parable was to get to the conscience of the king. And the king had eventually seen the reality, and he'd been convicted of his sin. And he'd reversed course, and he had poured out repentance to God. These things, are, these things are in Joab's mind. So he gets a woman to go. He thinks he listens, he listens to women. He gets her to do a similar rerun of the Nathan kind of thing. He gives her a parable to tell. It's quite straightforward. She has two sons. The two sons, the two boys are out in the field one day. They have a quarrel. They get into a fight. And in the course of the fight, one of the boys dies. Manslaughter. I think manslaughter. No malice of forethought suggested. It was an accident. But now the clan is against this boy who has killed his brother. They're out to get him. And she's come to David. So she tells him she's come to David because if this second boy dies, that's the end of, that's the end of her story. She's nobody to look after her in her old age. As if nowadays they would. But uh, uh, she's no one to look after her in her old age. More than that, her husband who's dead now has nobody to carry on his name to be immortalized in Israel. That was very important to them in that culture. It's all going to come to an end. She comes to the king and she says, what, what, what am I going to do? What, what, what are you going to say to me in this situation? So look at verse 8. What does the king say to her? The king says to her, okay, thank you for sharing. Go to your house and uh, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And, of course, that kind of language, don't you? You get that all the time. People say that to you, and they never get, you know, they're never going to get back to you, you know. I mean, I, I try this song with these people that call. They call the house, you know, they offer me all kinds of stuff. Uh, they offer to change all my savings into gold, or they, you know, all this kind of crap that comes in, in the... Uh, and I say, oh, well, I'll get back to you. Give me your number, I'll get back. They don't like that. I know why they don't like that, because they know... There's no way that I'm ever going to get back to them. And David says to this woman, go on, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get back to you on that. But she won't take it. She, will not, she is assertive. She comes back to him and she says, well, don't just send me away like that. I, I need a response. I need some kind of reaction from you. I need you to tell me what you're going to do. What is your verdict on this? I need a verdict. I need you to make a decision. Now, you men here, you know how hard you find it making decisions, don't you? David is like us. In that respect, he's, he doesn't want to make a decision on this one. It's too tricky to make a decision on. But she insists that he does. Please, 
Make a decision, King David, about my son. And so David says, okay, anybody touches you, I'll get them. I'll be, you know, I'll be on your side. She says, that's not enough, O king. I need you to make a promise. I need you to swear an oath. Look at verse 11. Please let the king invoke the name of the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood will kill no more, and my son will not be destroyed. And David responds, and he says, yes, as the Lord lives, he swears an oath, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It's a great story. Sounds a little bit like the story of Cain and Abel, when Cain is spared, although he's killed his brother Abel. Perhaps she wants to, or Joab through her, wants to alert the king to that story and think, well, you know, God spared Cain. You should perhaps spare Absalom. And you listen to the story and you think, is this wisdom? She wants David not to act like the king he is. She's actually asking the king not to perform his judicial function as the supreme judge in Israel. She is saying to the king, would you please ignore the law on this occasion, just as you're ignoring the law in relation to my son, won't you ignore the law in relation to your own son? Because, O oh king, your son, he's excluded. And you're doing nothing about that. Now, the woman's reasoning may sound plausible, but if you look at her story, technically, there's a major difference, a major difference between her little tale and the reality of Absalom. In her little tale, as I said, manslaughter is what happens. It's an accident. In, her, in Absalom's case, it is premeditated, two years in the planning, murder. What Absalom's crime calls for is not mercy, but justice. Don't mistake guile for wisdom. This little scenario is a million miles away from what Nathan the prophet says to David earlier in the story. What he says is a word of God. What he says is a word that comes from God and that leads to conviction of sin, sin being taken desperately seriously, where here it doesn't have that effect at all. Here's my second point. Don't confuse guile for wisdom. Secondly, don't confuse sentimentality for spirituality. I said there's a huge difference between Nathan and this woman. The point of Nathan's talk, parable, was designed to arouse David's conscience as opposed to his feelings. Her little parable was designed to arouse his feelings as opposed to his conscience. And it's at this point that this woman talking to the king introduces a kind of element of spirituality. Now, can I just say this? There's nothing worse. There is absolutely nothing worse. When you're dealing with serious matters about things, when you're dealing with plain matters of right and wrong, good and bad, and so on, when somebody all of a sudden reverts to using spiritual language, you want to slap their face. Or maybe that's just me. You want to say, get over it. You know, come on, get real here. 
And you listen to this woman and you think, why is she bringing this in here? She's getting all spiritual on him. Look at the kind of language she uses. Verse 14. We must all die. She's getting quite theatrical. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground that can't be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, what do you think about that? Do you think that's good theology? God will not take away life. Is that true? Is it true that God never judges, that God never takes away life? Is it true that he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast? Well, that, in some ways that is true, isn't it? In the Exodus, God devised a mean by which those who were banished, those who were in exile and slavery were brought back. That is true. But what she is suggesting, listen to this, what she is suggesting is that God forgives sin by ignoring sin. That's what she's suggesting. That's what she's suggesting to David. So first of all, what she's done is she's minimized the wrong that Absalom has done and equated it with an act of manslaughter. Then she is minimizing God's judgment by saying that God doesn't take away life. What is she doing? She is misrepresenting God. She's using spiritual language to disguise what we would call unbiblical truth, bad theology. She is appealing, you see, to David's feelings, not to his mind, not to his intelligence, not to his understanding of God and God's Word. She is trying to reach his feelings, his sentimental feelings for his son and for her son and her circumstances. She, keeps, she brings it all back to herself again at the end of this little scenario. In other words, she wants to root what she's saying about Absalom very much into her experience that has got David's attention and that has got David moved by it. That's what she's doing. You see... She is trying to get the king to sacrifice his judicial function in favor of his sentimental feelings. That's her goal. That's her point. Now this kind of thing happens a lot in religion, doesn't it? There are these two elements, aren't there, in religion. One is a judicial element and the other is a kind of emotional element. And in some religions, it's the judicial element that seems to win out. And so there are all kinds of rules and regulations. In, in one form of Christianity, for example, even though you are pronounced forgiven of your sins, nonetheless, you also have to, to contribute penance. You have to do penance. There are penalty points that you have to you pay as well as receiving the forgiveness of God. You have to do these things in order to accompany or go alongside the forgiveness of God. In other words, there's an overemphasis on the judicial aspect of our relationship with God. In other religions, in pagan religions, you, you, in order to satisfy God, in order to meet the judicial requirements of God, you have to kill your cat or your dog or your pigeon or your little baby or your mother-in-law. Some of the laws aren't too bad. You have to do these, you have to do these things in order to satisfy the God. That's the judicial element of, of religion that taken to its ultimate degree. But then there's 
the other side of the coin, what she's doing here, appealing to the emotions. When you appeal to the emotions and sentiment, do you know this is what you do? You minimize the truth of God and the requirements of God. You minimize them. You say that God isn't, you know, he isn't really concerned about the details. This happens theologically all the time, by the way, all the time. Theologically, what, what, what we do is we minimize the standards of God's word. And we say, we say, well, you know, although the Bible says there was a, an Adam, it doesn't really matter whether there was an Adam or not. And although the Bible says Adam is the first man and the fountain of the human race, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. Some people don't believe in that, that's fine, that's not a big deal. We, we decide what are the big deals and what aren't the big deals. We decide what we can take seriously and literally and what we can take, what we make important in the, we decide these things we take upon ourselves the position of God who has revealed himself in scripture and we play God and we decide what you can and cannot may or may not take we decide that we make ourselves the judge in in at the very heart of the Christianity there's this great uh, element of the judicial and the emotional because there's no doubt that the Bible teaches God loves the world. God loves the world. God loves you. He loves all that he has made. On the other hand, it says that God is a judge. God is just. God will do what is right. And all the time in theology, there's this kind of great tension. Either we take it one way into real legalism, not what they call legalism nowadays, which isn't legalism at all. It's just you tell them to do anything. That's legalism. But in the Bible, real legalism is where your relationship to God is posited on strict justice and the requirements of the law. On the other hand, you make emotion and sentiment the thing. Well, you know, God won't really send everybody to hell, you know. And, and God is good. And at the end of the day, we, we trust in the mercy of God, you know. It was, one of the, it was one of the French revolutionaries that said, forgiveness. God will forgive. That's his job. General Schwarzkopf said, forgiveness is God's function. Is that true? If you know your Bible, you know that's not true. At the very heart of the gospel is this problem. This is the problem. And it has to do with justice that's raised by this passage. The question is this. How can God be just and at the same time justify the sinner, the offender? That's God's problem. It's the problem that's resolved by Calvary. That is where Jesus died. Because God puts skin on, God comes down to our size and shape, God lives in our world in Christ, God obeys the law of God in Christ, He obeys the law of God that we broke as a human being, He dies our death, He takes our punishment, He bears our sins, He rises from the dead, and He does all of that to demonstrate what? That God is just and must be satisfied in His justice. And that God's love has found a way to do that without sacrificing justice and without saying to us, there, 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 
you know, it's not as bad as I said it was. And I'm not as seriously against it as I said I was. He points us to the cross and he says, that's how serious sin is. It has to be punished, and it's punished in the innocent person of God-made flesh, God in Christ. What she's pushing David to do is to yield to sentimentality rather than real spirituality. This happens, by the way, in the church. If you, it seems to me if you take ancient Israel, ancient Israel is a nation state. The church today, thankfully, is not a nation state, though we, we are a holy nation. Fortunately, the business of murder and how that's dealt with has been placed in the hands of uh, the, other, the other kingdom, the kingdom of this world, that has been given the, the power of the sword and the right to try these things and to come to conclusions and to execute its sentence under the authority of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Fortunately, that's their business. The church, however, has to police itself. And how often in policing ourselves do we overlook sin out of sentiment? Now, now we're better with moral sins because everybody's outraged by moral sins. So we can deal with those relatively Effectively, the real things are the spiritual sins of theological error. We get all sentimental about this. Especially if we have to discipline a friend of ours or a family member of ours. People with whom we share real affection. We don't want to do that because we don't want to hurt them. In controversy, well, it's hurtful. People get hurt in controversy. So, this is a battle for truth. David loses the battle here. He descends into sentimentality. Error is allowed airtime, and error wins out. Let's leave that. Let's move on. A third lesson. We mustn't confuse glamour and godliness. You look at verse 25. It seems to come out of the blue. Verse 25 through to verse 27. We didn't read it, so I'm going to read it to you now. You ask yourself... Why is this in the Bible? Okay, why is this even being noticed? Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Let's just go looking around there, see if there's anybody I could use as an illustration, but no. So, here it is, and you'll see why. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy upon him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. About six pounds or something. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a beautiful woman like her aunt. She was a beautiful woman. Now what do you used to take from that? What's the take home from that little paragraph in the Bible? Here is a beautiful man with a beautiful family. Here is the picture of health and virility. The paparazzi of those days would be going around snapping little pictures of this man and his family wherever they went on vacation because he was so popular. You pick up a magazine at the grocery store in ancient Israel and there would be a picture slap dab in the middle of Absalom with his hair posing. I know he posed because he loved himself. I know he posed because we know how much his hair weighed. 
And the only way you know that is if he was doing it himself and telling people how much his hair weighed. This guy really loves himself. I mean, there may be little old ladies there lining up outside the palace that Absalom lives in and saying, could I have a little strand of Absalom's hair? Ooh, it's so exciting. But you know, we've heard it all before. Do you know the story? It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. You know the story, you've heard all this before. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, Saul. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. And when Samuel had gone to find a replacement for Saul, he went to the house of, the, of Jesse, who had many sons, and he looked at the oldest one, Eliab, and he thought, Eliab, well, he looks handsome. He would, he would look good on the cover of Vogue magazine or whatever, in, or whatever magazine, Men's Health or something, uh, or whatever. I don't know the magazines because I never read them, but there, there you go. Um, he'd look good on the cover of the magazine. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God looked at the heart of Absalom. It was rotten to the core. Rotten to the core, as we'll see as the story progresses. And whatever emphasis is put on what a person looks like in the Bible, this is not because the Bible doesn't like beautiful people. Of course it does. David was a beautiful person. But whenever great emphasis is put on this in the Bible, it's in order to tell us a lesson, to teach us this, that Image, presence, style, don't tell you anything about the character of the person. They don't tell you anything. We don't learn that lesson, do we? When we're looking for senatorial or presidential candidates, very often we like people who, who look good on the media, they look good on the podium, they, they, they present themselves well. We look at these external things and we judge the book by its cover. Very often we get it wrong because we don't know the whole story. And in the church today, what do we want? We want people who are media savvy and market sensitive, leaders that are marked by style rather than substance. But when you read the Bible, you find the Bible stresses godliness over giftedness character over charisma, faithfulness over faddishness. Don't mistake glamour for godliness. Then the last thing I need to say is this. Don't confuse opportunity with providence. David brings him back. David lets Absalom live uh, in, in another house, he doesn't see him. David will not receive him into his presence. I think David has brought him back, but David is not comfortable. He knows that what he's done is he's brought back someone who is a murderer. Everybody knows he is a murderer. Everybody now knows that David has not acted according to the law with respect to his own son. So he's hesitant. He doesn't want to, he's, he's got him back in Jerusalem, but he doesn't want him back in the palace because he, he, he realizes that there is something not right about this. And it isn't long before Joab discovers there's something not right about this. If you look at verses 28 and 29, you'll find that Absalom would, would try and get a, a hold of Joab, and Joab wouldn't return his calls. Absalom sent for Joab, 
but he wouldn't come to him. And he sent a second time and Joab wouldn't come to him. And then you really see what Absalom is like. Absalom sends his men to set fire to Joab's fields. And they're blazing away there. And Joab goes to him and says, what are your young men doing setting fire to my field? And Absalom says to him, I had to get your attention some way. I want you to go to the king and I want you to say to the king, let me come into your presence and if there's guilt in me, let him be put to death, verses 31 32. Effectively, he says, I want you to go to the king and say to the king, either execute me or rehabilitate me. He's giving the king an ultimatum. Execute me or rehabilitate me. And we know from the next chapter that David could not have executed Absalom because Absalom has been using these two years to ingratiate himself with the people of Jerusalem. He is now too powerful to touch. Too powerful to touch. And the battle is lost. And so we read at the end of the chapter, verse 33, he came to the king, bowed himself down, made a great show of bowing before the king. He bowed his face to the ground before the king while despising him in his heart. And the king kisses him. If you had asked Absalom, how come this has all worked out like this? You murdered your brother. You went into exile. You came back to Jerusalem. Now you've been kissed by the king. He would have said to you, it's the providence of God. Back in July 20th, 1944, a military conference was in progress. A briefcase had been placed by some very brave men underneath a desk. It suddenly exploded a few minutes later. And the intended victim, Adolf Hitler, stumbled out through the fog of the explosion, bruised and tattered, but still alive. And when he met Mussolini later that day, still in his uniform, and showed him the room where the explosion had taken place and the damage to his uniform. He said to Mussolini, I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. It is God's intervention. Look at this room. Look at my uniform. When I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and bring my great enterprise to completion. Here is Absalom driven by hatred, guilty of cold-blooded murder, with friends in high places, using sheer arrogance to push others to get his own way. And when we see Absalom's advancement and the movement from murderer on the run to home in Jerusalem, being kissed on the cheek by the king, we wonder why are things working out for this young man? On the one hand, God's going to use it to strengthen and teach David in his faith. In another sense, ultimately, it's going to lead to the punishment that Absalom deserves. But in the meantime, it looks as if he's got off scot-free. Sometimes there are people like that in your life, aren't there? There are people for whom everything seems to go well, and you wonder, why is it that the righteous suffer? 
and some people like them succeed. And the answer of the passage is you haven't seen the end of the story. There's more to come. And in your story, that's true too. You haven't seen the end of the story. Don't jump ahead of yourself. Keep trusting in God. And as far as the church is concerned, we, we, we learn this. To beware of growing older and softer. To beware of the danger of older men and women. To not be a sharp in their lookout for error or evil and to mistake those fuzzy feelings of sentimental fluff with true spirituality or godly discernment. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please by your Holy Spirit help us to learn from David caught out as he was by these schemers, Absalom and Joab, and the woman who is the sidekick of Joab, and was taken aback, taken on the wrong foot, and who fell in this area. We pray that we would be sharp in our thinking. We pray that we wouldn't let sentiment override principle and duty, the duty of defending what is true, the duty of defending our faith, the duty of living godly in Christ Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.